up, nerds? This is In My Expert Opinion, a podcast about the nonfiction side of speculative fiction. Your hosts are Dr. Marcus Cole. I get paid to do science. Sarah Ward. I'm a scientist in progress. And me, Abby Cole. I'm not a scientist at all. Join us as we geek out about the made-up stuff we love and the real stuff that shaped it. Today we're starting our series on X-Men and mutants in general, Um, and for this we're going to be talking about a series of social issues across the episodes, um, like sort of allegory and that kind of thing, Uh, and we're going to be starting off with some gay stuff. Uh, This is going to be a two-parter, and uh, we'll be moving into some other topics after that. Yeah. Dope. Looking forward to it. Some gay stuff, I guess, was pretty vague. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about first, I guess, like like an LGBTQ allegory for the X-Men. This is a popular one, is my understanding. Yeah, I would say it's one of the big ones. I guess first, let's introduce the X-Men, though. Yeah. So for those who don't know the X-Men, um, it's a Marvel comic series. My mom loves it. Yeah. <laughs> for a while growing up, uh, my closet was mostly x-men comics storage wow some of it was my clothes but also it was my mom's comics <laughs> damn she's a real fan so the uh the x-men comic series was created by stan lee and jack kirby in 63 you know pretty early on it was like established that mutants were like the other mm-hmm. right like you have this idea mm-hmm. of like these are people that have mutant powers they have this like x gene or the x factor that makes them different from normal people kind Wait, of thing is and- that why it's called the x-men yeah yeah the x gene <laughs> the x gene yep i had no idea sometimes called the x factor i think in yeah, some story lines. as like an extra like sequence of they're extraordinary or, yeah, i think like, it was like one of the first like taglines there's so many sure, ways sure, you sure, can sure. apply the x Wow. Okay. Yeah. So like, I, you know, it was like pretty early on meant to be like about this like group of other that were usually discriminated against, you know, pretty early on in like 65. So the 14th issue of X-Men, you know, they introduced these like mutant hunting robots called the Sentinels. Mm. And so like, obviously, when people look at X-Men, they're focusing a lot on like the idea of identity and like reading them as like allegories for different groups of people. Sure. X-Men has like changed writers several times. So it got canceled after like issue 66, but then they came back in May of 1975 with Chris Claremont as the new writer. He was like the writer until 91. And then they've had like several other head writers and, you know, like hundreds, I feel like, of like different storylines about all of these like different characters. But, you know, like the big ones that we know about are like Professor X. That's Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Magneto. That's Ian McKellen. Serene McKellen controls. Oh, yeah. Serene McKellen. My bad. My he, bad. Uh, Serene McKellen is like uh, a magnet dude. There's Wolverine. Actually, it's also Sir Patrick Stewart, isn't it? Oh, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it is. Hmm. Sir Wolverine. Yeah, Sir Wolverine. <laughs> Sir Hugh Jackman. Has Hugh Jackman been yeah. knighted? Mr. Hugh Jackman. <laughs> Mr. We, Hugh we've, Jackman. we've knighted him on the podcast. He's he's a, yeah. he's a right. knight of the IMEO roundtable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, like by the time it hit 1994, X-Men titles were about 14% of the comic book market in total. Holy Damn. crap. Marvel was publishing like 50 million X-Men books a year. Like this was like a Dude. massive so franchise. Wait, yo, this is like right <laughs> when the cartoon had to be popping off. You said 94? Yeah, I oh, think it was around yeah, that time man. too, right? Oh, yeah. Dude, the, the, the great time to be an X-Men fan. Let's like, like a little kid. The comics are getting good. The artwork's getting better. And now you've you got- You the early 2000s. All the movies start right? coming out. X-Men had a, a rough 
start, like most things that were started in the 1960s. Yeah, except my parents. I love you, mom and dad. You guys are great. <laughs> but um, even early on, like, so in 82, Claremont was saying that he was getting fan mail from gay readers who believed the X-Men were, quote, making positive subliminal statements about gay rights. And this was like early in the AIDS crisis. Mm. Yeah. You know, comic critics, you know, we're talking about how mutant can symbolize any reason for like feeling alienated from society. Like, so these are like you know, characters that you could easily kind of see yourself in and see like marginalized communities in kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically Stan Lee said pretty early on too that he wanted to like spotlight a group of innocent people who were feared and shunned and like hunted. You know what I mean? Anyone, no matter how blameless, can be victimized. Chris Claremont, upon taking over, said that the X-Men are feared, hated, and despised collectively for no other reason than they are mutants. What is uh, happening here then, intended or not, is that it's a book about racism, bigotry, prejudice. It's about the downtrodden and repressed people trying to change their situation. So, my, so, And that's for a variety of different things that people draw comparisons to, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any yeah. probably like marginalized group. And I mean, like, I guess like the aspects of like the being hunted can be like very like specific specific to certain groups like i mean if you want to like draw yeah, connections to like right. lynchings it's like okay like this is very clearly associated with that but i feel like anybody can kind of resonate with like aspects of these stories and these characters or the concepts that the x-men kind of present mm-hmm. yeah i don't want us to get a- ahead of ourselves too too far but i do think the lgbtq stuff is one that holds up pretty extensively not just in certain aspects of it. I don't know if that's... I would uh, say partly because um, some mutants present powers that are visible and others have powers that are invisible. And so that mm. kind of helps have this LGBTQ metaphor because you have like, you know, closet metaphors. Um, yeah. For example, in Uncanny X-Men 294, Professor X delivers an anti-hate speech at a concert that's meant to celebrate diversity and mutant diversity um, and features a closet mutant like kind of running it. And part of his speech says this concert is about embracing our uniqueness, the color of a man's skin, the choice of whom we love and there are several mutants in attendance who are mutants but no one knows that they're mutants kind of thing Mm -hmm. and so this allows for like an lgbtq reading of the x-men a lot more obvious than like a race reading you know what i mean like yeah being able to say like oh well this guy's a mutant but no one knows kind of thing they're like coming out storylines i guess like the only reason would be like like i guess passing would be the only thing but like yeah that's true right yeah i feel like the closeted like make the analogy like i feel like probably fits better for that in like this like I guess scene, like our setting, like where Professor X is like talking to this crowd of people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's no reason people can't like resonate. Yeah. Ways anyway, so. <laughs> that's the whole point. It's going to be everything. Yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> this is anybody who feels uh, ostracized. Uh, yeah, there was also another X-Men writer, Fabian Nicieza, uh, who wrote The New Warriors, technically not the X-Men, mm-hmm. but about mutants in general, uh, who included mm-hmm. the storyline of Marvel Boy, who is a mutant. And Marvel Boy is beaten by his father for hanging out with his mutant friends. And throughout the story, he later learns that his grandfather beat his father for being gay and hanging out with gay friends. So you have this like oh. pretty clearly drawn mm-hmm. parallels um, with these like stories of being, you know, closeted, coming out kind of thing, passing being invisible in society, you know? Sorry, uh, this is a brief detour, but what's the distinction again between the X-Men and mutants in general? I think I know, but I'm not totally clear on it. So X-Men or anyone that is like kind of a part of Professor Charles Xavier's um, group or like students from his school that join like these elite group of like, I guess- mutant fighters that are they they normally like i don't like i guess initiate attacks but they kind of like step in to protect mutants if like sentinels are attacking them or like any other kind of like fringe group of like humans that are like rejecting mutants they kind of step in and like are the protective party okay great thank you 
Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a pretty brutal parallel. I mean, not brutal, but it's, yeah, impactful, I guess, is a better word for it. Yeah, I mean, a major criticism then is that, you know, for a really long time, there weren't any out X-Men. Like, they were constantly drawing <laughs> this parallel. Sure, sure. But they were all straight and cis, you know what I mean? You know, like the gays, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> gay adjacent. Right, like, we're going to draw the, the parallel, but we're not going to include a gay character. <laughs> exactly. Gay adjacent. And actually, the first out gay character was not introduced until 92. Woo! So this was North Star. Okay. Famous, famous X-Man North Star. Yeah. So there was a revamping of the (laughs) comics code in 1989. Basically, it was like, you guys have to portray like gay people in a positive way. Interesting. And so more gay people started appearing in mainstream comics. And then North Star was a member of the Marvel Canadian super team Alpha Flight who then Uh, became a member of the X-Men. So his official coming out story was in 92. But honestly, I would say he's like a C-list character. Not a lot of people know about Northstar. He like married his boyfriend in like a 2012 comic, but he's not like hugely featured. You know what I mean? No. I have never heard of him before. I'm just on the Wikipedia, but I guess his first appearance was in the Uncanny X-Men from, I guess, 1980. Mm -hmm. He was like generally coded as like gay or queer because he was like generally not interested in women. Honestly, the queer like subtext is really common in X Men. Mm-hmm. Like you have like Kitty Pride yep. and Ileana Rasputin wrestling in a bed, like Storm and Yukio <laughs> like Wait, hang on, generally hang on. flirting. <laughs> I actually saw a quote that said there was quote a lot of implied queerness in Claremont's X Men run. Well, okay, how much of this? I forget what that freaking code of ethics thing is called. Do you know what I'm talking about? The thing that was like you can't show gay people in the movies. Oh, yeah, I'm not totally sure. I mean, in 1989, they had the revamping of the comics code to be like, you have to include them positively if you're going to include them. Mm-hmm. Right. But I don't know if there was like a code for comics for the same thing. Yeah, I don't know. Huh. Anyway, so there are like since then some out X-Men. There's like Iceman, you know, Bobby. Yeah. Who like has this kind of like <laughs> vaguely troubled storyline. Like he like jokes about being gay. He like tries to flirt with women in a way that's like really overcompensating. He has like a really bad conversation conversation with a gender non-conforming character that's like expressing his discomfort but then he's like outed by phoenix who reads his mind and tells him that he's gay or something wow that's wow that's i did not know that happened (laughs) it's not great it's part of the storyline where he like time travels and it's like okay him coming to terms with it but also it's the younger version who's told that so then he has to reconcile with his older version who like maybe isn't out or understands himself like it's Mm -hmm. i don't know it was really really messy when i was reading through i also remember in the movie he like or like i can't remember what x-men movie but when when Bobby like goes home and I think like oh, yeah. the X-Men show up to like take him back. Like there, I mean, I, I don't know what this is like, but it seemed like there was this like identity crisis that he was having or issue with his like father. And it was a lot of just like trying yes. to like hide like who he was and wasn't able to be like, he wasn't willing to accept him as he was, even though like he'd gone yeah. out and like became an X-Men and all this stuff. It was still like, you won't see me as like a, your son and now this like mutant thing that can be kind of like an analogy for a lot of things is like in the way of you just like loving me and accepting me. I would say that was probably intentional because if I recall correctly, the director for that one is Brian Singer, who is uh out and gay. Yeah. Is I'm not I'm it's been a hot second since I've seen the X-Men movies. Is Bobby the guy who was like with the girl whose powers is rogue, he, I think, uh, right? Were they dating? Yeah. Am I making yeah, that they up? Were dating. All right. That may have been part of his overcompensating phase. <laughs> yeah, Bobby stuff's kind of messy. There's like other out characters since then. Destiny is out. Um, she's actually a woman who's shown to be in a relationship with Mystique during Mystique's initial solo series. 
they co-adopt Rogue. Oh. In Deadpool movies, Deadpool is obviously Pan, Negasonic Teenage Warhead, and Yukio are in it, and they're in a relationship. You know, Shatterstar's out, Psylocke's by, mm-hmm. uh, Kitty Pride, I think is by in like one of the series or something. Uh, there's like at least one out trans character. So there's like some, but they're not really a major focus. And so you end up having this like, here's the allegory for LGBTQ characters, but we're not really going to include them very frequently. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that also sometimes these characters are only queer in certain versions or multiverse adaptations. Or do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Deadpool's not always Pan. He's just in some of them he is and some of them he's not. Yeah. That kind I of mean, thing. I guess you could like, re- like if you can like look at certain details from like older Deadpool maybe and like you can retcon it like, oh, like yeah. I-, I guess it's kind of like up to like your interpretation as like the reader. But like it probably has sure. not been stated explicitly in older issues. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem of having a long-running series that is, like, covered by so many different writers. Yeah. But because you can, like, kind of hop into a different universe or hop into a different storyline, there is so much opportunity to tell these stories. And kind of, like, the fact that people yeah. don't is, like, okay, well, this is the the culture just doesn't want to talk about this. Because there's nothing preventing you from, like, creating just a completely new timeline and talking about more social issues or giving, like, gay characters an actual yeah. platform to, like, talk about being a gay superhero or gay mutant in, like, a more right. holistic fashion. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, honestly, some of the comparisons that are there are not super well done. I'll talk about this, I think, in the follow-up episode, but like trans narratives in particular tend to be very sloppily handled and yeah. frankly, like pretty astoundingly transphobic. Probably not written by trans writers. <laughs> shocking. Shocking literally everyone. Yeah, seriously. But, you know, there are some, you know, storylines in X-Men that are really meant to be quite obvious parallels to LGBTQ, uh, like, history and characters, people and struggles and stuff like that. Um, So I thought mm-hmm. we could cover two of them. So sure. the first would be a storyline in the 1980s uh, called God Loves, Man Kills. Hmm. It's about Whoa, a bigoted nice. preacher named Stryker. I'm sure you can see where oh, this is yeah. going. Got it. <laughs> Basically, he's oh, like- does somebody- Wait, wait, wait. I have a guess. I have a guess. Yeah. Does the church- hate the gays (laughs) pretty much what he says is he declares that mutants are always hiding among the quote decent ordinary people of the world posing an invisible threat kind of thing so this is like oh pretty not subtle (laughs) (laughs) not too sneaky (laughs) um quick plug or like little tangent there's a similar storyline for the x-force um series Mm -hmm. which basically uh it take it as it is is the like black ops x-men are like we can't allow these bigots to really function anymore and now we need to go and like take them out Whoa. like like and like oh. professor x is like hands off but cyclops is like yo wolverine find a team build it up <laughs> and Whoa. like and it's like it's the wow. glory but it, it's a, such an awesome comic because honestly these cool. bigots are dangerous like they're literally like the crazy alt-right tiki <gasps> torch people but like we're gonna go and like kill mutants on a large scale and it's what? like No one wants to touch that with a 10-foot pole, so, like, Cyclops is like, okay, I guess we need to come up with, like, a Black Ops team to handle this. All right, undercover. (laughs) So, shout out to Uh, X-Force. Ally extraordinaire. (laughs) Deadpool's on the team. Good job, buddy. That's, oh, of course he is. That is amazing. I do love that. That sounds quite fun. I would watch that movie for sure. A bunch of, like, A-list X-Men going around killing bigots. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that sounds very good. The Deadpool movie did, like, did, like, a a nod to X-Force because that's what they called, like. Yeah, they all died. Yeah, they all died. It was the joke. Pretty sad. 
Anyway, uh, yeah. tell me more about Stryker. I don't actually have very much more to say about Stryker. It's oh, pretty okay. like, oh, <laughs> uh, yes, homophobic preacher. Who could have seen it coming? But I did want to talk about something called the Lavender Scare, mm. which happened concurrently with like the Red Scare and McCarthyism, but isn't really talked about that much. But, you know, it deals with this like this public perception of there are gay people out there and they're hiding among us. and We have to like weed them out kind of thing. Yeah, so do you guys know uh, very much about the Lavender Scare? No. No. Who named it the Lavender Scare? Uh, I'm not sure who named it. It's generally referred to such. Lavender is like very commonly associated with like LGBT stuff. Okay. That's sort of a weird, there's like a uh, dissonance there because I think of Lavender as this very soothing thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's called it's the, like lavender the Lavender Scare like... because the Lavender is associated with the LGBTQ people in the yes, same yes. way that the Red Scare was associated with like hunting communists. Oh, mm-hmm. right. Duh. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> so the Lavender Scare happened in like the 50s and 60s primarily. It kind of sort of started in the late 40s, but it was about finding LGBT civil servants in the federal government and firing them. <sighs> So in 1947, the U.S. Park Police created the Sex Perversion Elimination Act. What? Yeah, it was basically targeting gay men for arrest and intimidation. You know, this kind of was a little bit of a start of it. Basically, the way it started, like, kind of officially, was February 9th, 1950, Senator McCarthy of McCarthyism. This motherfucker, I swear to God. (laughs) In his famous speech where he claimed to have a list of 205 known communists working for the State Department, Mm -hmm. also said that... Or rather, he so he gave that speech, right? February 20th, he then spoke on the Senate floor about them more broadly, laboring them as like unsafe risks. And two of them were about gay individuals. Case 14 okay. and case 62 were directly linking homosexuality and communism. Wow. Basically, what he said was that a top intelligence official told him, quote, every active communist is twisted mentally or physically in some way. And then he went on to imply all homosexuals are susceptible because they have a peculiar mental twist. So he explicitly is linking homosexuality with communism. This is this is sort of bugging me because I've been sitting in, so I share a classroom with a history teacher. I've been hearing a lot about McCarthyism recently, mm-hmm. and it's kind of annoying to me that this was not included. I mean, I didn't learn about it until the last couple of years kind of thing. I had never heard of this. Well, I obviously yeah. hadn't either, but I'm just kind of annoyed because I have been learning a lot about McCarthyism or relearning a lot about McCarthyism recently yeah. by just sort of osmosis. So, but like in relation to like the Lavender Scare, were there a lot of just like, I guess, I mean, I'm assuming not out, but like gay state workers that were then like called communists that could have been just like starch like Republicans, but it's like, oh, you're gay. So we're going to call you a communist. And now we're going to like remove you. Honestly, they didn't even make the jump usually from you're gay to I you're mean, communist. It was, like, was you're gay. You, gotta go. you are susceptible to communist influence oh. therefore you have to be fired so it wasn't that they were being labeled weak- communist oh. it was that they were considered weak links to communist right. oh that makes more sense uh so a week after this speech that he gave on the senate floor the deputy undersecretary of state john purifoy purifoy then sure. testified to a subcommittee of the senate committee of appropriations and disclosed that the state department had gotten rid of 91 homosexual employees for being security risks oh man so this then kick-started two large investigations by congress the first took place from late March to May of 1950. It was led by Senator Kenneth Wary. Actually, they were the only ones on the committee. Senator Kenneth Wary, who was a Republican, and Jay Lister Hill, who was a Democrat. There are no records of their investigation that survived beyond press coverage and published reports. 
one report from each of them. This Jesus. is, it's really what, I mean, we've come such a far away of like outing people because of their sexuality from government positions where they could probably do some kind of societal good to now having politicians give tours to people that then use that information to uh like <laughs> enact an insurrection yeah so the it's capital, like, yeah we're so worried about like certain aspects of people's lives that's like oh this is like what makes them so corrupt and like this is going to be the yeah. fall of democracy because of this aspect and it's like nope man it really like people are kind of just good and bad all it doesn't really matter what they're doing like sexuality race like people can be good bad like all across the board but if you're gonna look at a certain thing about someone and decide that they're bad then you're just ignorant and i don't know unless unless that thing is bigotry yes. itself <laughs> like i think that that like you should you should be hated for being a hater and that's like actually it's a sin it's to a be sin a hater. Hater. yeah <laughs> as we've discovered yeah whatever yeah so basically in this first investigation wary and hill uh i by the way i'm going to be using the word homosexual a lot which is not a great word i mean generally speaking it's been i think it's pretty well known at this point that that is like a pretty not appropriate way of referring to like gay men or lgbt people at large you mean like as a collective yeah but i this is what is used in reports but they were mostly talking about gay men but also like lesbians and uh i'll get into some weird by part of it in a second but uh generally the language of all these reports was saying homosexual so i will be using that predominantly fair yeah. enough so this committee heard testimony from lieutenant roy blick who is the head of the dc metro police department vice squad uh, he claimed that there were five thousand homosexuals living in dc and 3700 were federal employees this was pure speculation he wait. did not have a source <laughs> of these numbers <laughs> okay wait this it seems like the peculiar twist of homosexuality is that it makes you want to be a civil servant <laughs> i think it's more that people who live in dc largely are civil servants but yeah <laughs> As part of this investigation, Wary and Hill questioned government officials. They wanted to know whether any one of the, quote, 91 moral weaklings <laughs> were fired, yeah. that were fired from the State Department made their way back into federal employment. 13 had been rehired. I don't I don't mean to make too much light of it. I'm sort of laughing as a, a release of mm. tension over here. <laughs> I hope that's apparent. Yeah, no, I, I feel like we all know, like, we're not trying to make light of the situation and the bullshit that went down. I mean, this mm -hmm. is it's like unbelievable how ridiculous all of this is. I, again, and I feel like I will continue to ask this question throughout history and like into the, like, the present and future. What is the threat? I, I understand creating, like, the, like, red scare and then using that to, like, leverage, like, the lavender scare. And it's, like, okay, like, right now it's, like, this whole idea of, like, I guess communism, whatever. But, like, if you just discover this, what if you look at someone's file? They've been a state employee for 20 years and it's, like, shoot, damn it. Like, well, it's <laughs> now we got to get rid of I them? mean, for a lot of people, if I can actually give you a an inside look at their perspective. Sure, that'd be great. I have a quote from Wary that he said during this uh, this investigation. Um, he said, only the most naive could believe that the communist fifth column in the United States would neglect to propagate and use homosexuals to gain their treacherous ends. Wow. Okay. I mean, part of this is like, I may be misunderstanding what, what you were getting at, but like part of this is like, there are people who believe that being gay is as bad as, if not the same as pedophilia, right? I mean, it's or like- Or bestiality. Yeah. Your bestiality or whatever. It's, or- It's the like the Puritans. Yeah, but like, you know, the same way, if you found out someone was like a sexual predator in government, you'd want them out, right? So like, that's, I guess, where this comes mm. from. And also communism, but- Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at like the public mentality at the time, 1952 was the APA's first DSM uh, was published and they classified homosexuality as a sociopathic personality disturbance. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
Dude, wow. That, I mean, so that was generally the public perception. Man, as a society, we're really good about like creating a scientific framework for our like bigotry. We're always ready just yeah. to like, okay, like we can write some <laughs> books, we can make some charts, we can show like density of brain mass in areas and correlate that to other things. It's like, okay. Yeah, let's get into phrenology, baby. Oh, <laughs> so that wraps up the first investigation. The second one was much larger. So this was kind of an initial investigation into these 91 employees specifically and also them hearing testimony that like confirmed their bias that like there were a bunch of gay people working in the government. But that was just one guy's statement that said there were 5,000 like. Yeah, that was the police department vice squad head. Just said like, okay, this is a number I'm I'm okay saying. Yep. Oh, okay, cool. Not going to back that up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, The second investigation was from the subcommittee of the Senate's Committee on Expenditures in the executive departments, uh, also known as the uh, Hoey Committee, uh, because he was the guy who led it. Hoey? H-O-E-Y. It's Hoey, right? Sounds like he's the perv. Why do we have so many? (laughs) (laughs) We have so many subcommittees for the subcommittees. I'm amazed that our government kind of functions. Yeah, I'm a little bit unfamiliar (laughs) with how these committee things operate, but you know. Anyway, so what they first wanted to do was get a collection of records that show um, a central index of all known or suspected homosexuals in the government. How? So they wanted to make a list, but then they couldn't because President Truman had already directed congressional committees to not have access to government personnel files. So then they had to change their direction. Then they started having a bunch of agency heads and like affiliates and medical professionals come in to give this testimony. Most agencies came out really strongly against the suitability of homosexual employees. For example, in a June 24th letter, the Secretary of Commerce, Charles Sawyer, said, The privilege of working for the United States government should not be extended to persons of dubious moral character, such as homosexuals or sex perverts. The confidence of our citizenry in their government would be severely taxed if we looked with tolerance upon the employment of such persons. Man. I'm sorry. I know that I'm supposed to keep talking because this is a podcast. It's just some of these are sort of getting me in the gut. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really And terrible. also just in like, I'm, like we're not a uh, political podcast, sure. but just like <laughs> looking at like the history of just like, you want to talk about sexual deviance in government? Like, I <laughs> I don't think these are probably like, like yeah. these are, might be your more traditional looking people on paper. Yeah, I mean, but how much of this is projection, right? Uh, like these people, how many people are like, quote unquote, upstanding moral character? And they project this idea of deviancy onto everybody yeah. else because they are so deeply misogynistic or like so deeply like homophobic, you know yeah. what I mean? So deeply racist in their own viewpoint that they can possibly comprehend other people not having these kinds of fucked up viewpoints. Exactly. Anyway, this isn't a political yep, podcast. <laughs> uh. <laughs> speaking of politics, so then they also heard a June 22nd testimony by the Surgeon General of the U.S. Public Health Service, Dr. Leonard Scheel. He said, we have many individuals who are not completely homosexual. We have some who are homo and heterosexual at various times. Amazing. So they didn't know that bi people existed, I guess. I know. This is incredible. You guys, this is my recommendation to both you and also anyone listening. One of my greatest pastimes when I am bored (laughs) is going to the Wikipedia pages of like famous historical figures and authors and artists and stuff, looking at the personal life section. And seeing what incredible hoops the people writing this jump through to try to get around the fact that they are gay or bi. It is extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, Lord Byron, he wasn't heterosexual or homosexual, but rather both and either. And it's like, it's like what dude, are you just say he's bi. Come on now. 
<laughs> what is happening? Just say or he like, also was into men. It feels like someone's trying to hit like a word count for like an essay. It's like, well, I didn't. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there is no evidence to suggest that the woman she lived with exclusively and shared a bed with late into her life was anything but a platonic partner. Yeah, it's, it's like, like what is okay. happening? It's her gal pal. I've, yeah, I've really derailed this here, but it's just such a delight. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so just basically, this committee issued a report called The Employment of Homosexuals and Other Sex Perverts in Government, where they uh, said that close to 5,000 gay people had been detected in the military and civilian workforces. They concluded that they were insuitable for federal employment and were security risks because they were uh, vulnerable to blackmail by communists in particular. By communists in particular? Yes. Are you fucking kidding me? You're the one fucking outing them. Yep. What is happening? Yep. What do you mean communists in particular? Uh, they then also said that they lacked emotional stability, had weak moral fiber, were a bad influence on the young, and attracted other of their kind to government service. Okay, to be fair, I did just prove that I'm emotionally unstable. Well, <laughs> uh, I'd like to read one quote from the report, which, you know, trying to slowly drag us back into X-Men. Yeah. This, like, homophobic preacher being like, they're all abominations in the eyes of God. You also have, like, in these actual reports issued by, like, congressional subcommittees saying stuff like, one homosexual can pollute a government office. With what? Their existence. Hmm. Again, what is the actual threat? The threat is to patriarchy, my dude. Yeah. yeah. These are people with power who have it under a certain set of circumstances, including patriarchal ones that are like, oh, this isn't what I thought power was and I don't like it because I like mm -hmm. what I've got. Yeah. Basically, this ended up being sent to U.S. NPCs and foreign intelligence agencies. It was quoted by the government. This report was used uh, to lay the groundwork for Eisenhower's 1953 Executive Order 10450, Security Requirements for Government Employees, uh, which explicitly added sexuality to the criteria to determine the suitability for employment. Five to tens of thousands of gay workers lost their jobs. Suicide was not uncommon. Typically, obituaries omitted the cause of death in these cases. Unlike the Red Scare, there was no public naming of names you know, spectacles where the accused themselves testified in front of the subcommittees. And this anonymity probably saved lives, but it did kind of turn it into this weird, like, shadow firing and, like, the destruction was largely silent kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, very quiet thing that happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. All this fear. And I mean, I guess that's, like, a big parallel between the, particularly, like, the response in, like, mutant comments of, like, the general public to mutants. It's just, like, this. Yeah. Because it, it instantly, like, it changes how you view someone. It's like, if you find out your neighbor's a mutant, you're just like, oh, like, what What does that mean? Like, are we safe? Is our right. neighborhood safe? It's a recurring storyline yeah. in both the comics yeah. and the films of this, like, they could be any one of us, and when mm. it comes out that it's one of them, then it's like, oh my god, could they have, like, hurt my children? Did they, like, corrupt my family kind of thing? Can they hurt me? Yeah. The Preacher Striker uh, was adapted into 2003's X2 X-Men United movie. Uh, that's where the Iceman coming out scene mm -hmm. was. So that was uh, later adapted into the movies as well. Oh, cool. So yeah, that's um, one major parallel, I would say. Mm -hmm. Okay. The second I wanted to talk about was about Strife. Ooh. What is Strife? This is S-T-R-Y-F-E, the clone of Cable and Nathan slash Nathan Summers. Oh. Strife was first introduced in the well, New Mutants 86 uh... in 1990 as the leader of the Mutant Liberation or MLF Mutant Terrorist Group. Sorry, Mutant Liberation Front. Wait. Marcus sounds excited. Is this a fun um, story or is this I another sad story? I love Cable <laughs> as a yeah. character and like his whole storyline and his relationship with Deadpool. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> it, fair. It, he just... was very good. 
I thought very fun in the movie. Yeah. Wait, do I? Did I? Cable is the robot. Yeah, with with the like a uh, uh, laser eye. Uh... He's like Gene Gray and Cyclops's child from like a different timeline that comes back to like save the world from like yes. other destruction. And Strife is it. his clone. Oh, yeah. it's. It's fucking Thanos. Yes, it's Thanos. Okay, got <laughs> it. <laughs> we were like two thirds of the way through the movie. I was like, man, he looks like Thanos. And Sarah so was like, yeah, for sure. He, does. <laughs> yeah, he definitely is, though. <laughs> yeah, so the stuff with Stryker, he is the creator of the legacy virus, which is honestly as clear cut of an AIDS metaphor as you can get in a comic book series. Okay. The legacy virus is an airborne virus, it has three different variations. It targets the X gene. In the first two iterations, if it can't find it, it dies off. So it only affects mutants. Uh... It was created by Apocalypse in the distant future to kill all non-mutants. Strife got it for his like own fuck you parents revenge plan and his like perceived, I don't know, like all of his woes and societal's woes were like because of mutants. So he made a variation that kills only mutants. Uh... At the end of Executioner's Song, he gives a companion a canister that has the virus. Uh-huh. I would also like to point out that a variation of this exists in the film Logan. Oh, The Wolverine okay. solo film. I mm-hmm. saw that. In Logan, by 2029, mutants are on the brink of extinction. Child mutants are being engineered to be used as soldiers. The virus in this was created to wipe out the mutant population to avenge the dude's death at the hands of Wolverine during the Weapons X program. Mm-hmm. So this is like a variation of the legacy virus. It's like mutant targeting virus. Sarah, did the, I guess did it come up in the research that like Stryker's child was a mutant and that this was like a big, like he had like a vendetta against like mutant kind because in the movies, like it's definitely like he's got this like mutant child that he hides away that's got similar powers to like- Oh, that Professor- scientist dude? Yeah. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. Um, I don't know about Stryker specifically. I think his is mostly like a he hated Cyclops and Phoenix. Okay. Basically, so the legacy virus, the symptoms are like skin lesions, fever, cough, weakness, and death. Um, So this is like a pretty clear imagery of AIDS. Yeah. The AIDS epidemic started in the mid to late 1970s in terms of people being infected, but it didn't really kind of hit, you know, the public's eye until like, you know, public notice until June 5th of 1981. The CDC published an article in their weekly morbidity and mortality report. Five white, previously healthy gay men in L.A. were brought to the hospital and had a rare lung infection of PCP or pneumocytosis uh, carini pneumonia, mm-hmm. um, among other unusual infections indicating that they had an immunocompromised uh, issue. On the same day, a dermatologist in New York, Dr. Friedman Kine, called the CDC to report a cluster of rare and aggressive uh, cancer among gay men in New York and California. Um, The AIDS crisis was an epidemic, particularly among gay men, as well as injecting drug users, uh, patients of blood transfusion, and women with infected partners. Mm -hmm. HIV, the virus that leads to AIDS, can spread through blood, semen, pre-ejaculate, vaginal fluids, and breast milk, but not saliva, tear, sweat, or urine. During the crisis, uh, a lot of activists, particularly in the LGBT community, created care and education centers, but the U.S. government was really, really slow to respond. Reagan didn't even talk about it during his first term. Why would you? He's like, "Eh, this isn't a problem for mainstream. He's just like, we can ignore these people. Basically. And one of his senior's advisors, Patrick Buchanan, wrote, uh, quote, the poor homosexuals, they have declared war upon nature, and now nature is exacting an awful retribution. Oh, my God. Sorry, can you, like, give me a second with that one? These (laughs) people... Who and when people want to argue that like the world is not as bad as it seems and we've come such a long long way, it's like, yeah, sure. But then when you look at like our history, it's like these are the thoughts that drove our policy and our actions for decades. And like now we're trying to 
rectify that. So it's like, yeah, we're coming a long ways, but it's like we have to undo so much evil that's been put out into the world. Yeah. I mean, if you look in the 80s, um, discrimination was really, really strong against the gay community. The CDC announced that casual contact would not transmit it in 1983. But even so, you have Diana, like, shaking hands with a dude with AIDS and everyone freaks out kind of thing. It was, before it was called AIDS or acquired immune deficiency syndrome, it was called GRID or gay-related immune deficiency. People generally called it the gay plague or the gay disease. Like, this was used to heavily discriminate against gay men in particular. By 1988, over 20,000 Americans had died. Government intervention was very slow. Part of the problem is that AIDS is a slow progression. When you are uh, infected with HIV, you know, two to four weeks after infection, you have some flu-like illness. Then there's a clinical latency period of up to 10 to 15 years where nothing happens. And then after that, late-stage HIV infection is uh, AIDS. Symptoms include rapid weight loss, recurring fever, swelling of lymph glands, uh, pneumonia, blotches on your skin um, or inside of your nose and eyelids, uh, memory loss, and other neurological disorders. And so a lot of the stigma was like this idea of like it was contracted through voluntary behaviors like gay sex that were already really heavily stigmatized in society. And people looked at it as this like incurable disease because it is chronic at best, fatal at worst, and something that was contagious and put others at risk. And so if you're looking at the 90s, so immediately after like the peak part of the AIDS crisis, there's a huge increase in support for civil rights issues, like Mm -hmm. including gay adoptions and gays in the military, but gays were still the least liked of social groups in 2000. This idea was that like gay people were voluntarily having sex and getting ill, and a lot of people thought it was deserved and that it only afflicted gay people and that that was a thing that they brought on themselves for having these like stigmatized like lifestyles you know what i mean in the comics does the legacy virus end up affecting non-mutants as well eventually yes basically it first attacks uh the legacy one and two only affect mutants the third one uh mutates itself and is able to affect regular hosts I kind of just wanted to like talk about how the legacy virus goes for a little bit. So the legacy virus like decimates the mutant population before it ends up affecting humans. Mm -hmm. A character named Grading Creed, who's the leader of the Friends of Humanity, said that the virus was a godsend. Sick mutants were then ostracized by humans and fellow mutants. This is really closely mimicking, you know, people in positions of power like Patrick Buchanan saying stuff like the gays brought it on themselves. This idea of the mutants brought it on themselves. Indeed, like a mutant created the virus, you know what I mean? Like, and inflicted it upon other mutants and they were dying. And so they were being ostracized by others in their community and by like non-mutants at large. It's the way it was handled was kind of odd. I feel like sometimes, for example, in Uncanny X-Men 303, this was about Colossus's sister, Ileana, as she dies from the legacy mm-hmm. virus. But the story is from the perspective of Jubilee. So it's this idea of like the reader is then empathizing with the viewer of the virus and not someone yeah. who is infected with it, which I mean, your mileage may vary, yeah. but is like not ideal, really. And so like making it be the storyline of Strife created it to punish the mutants was a like a consequence of mutant irresponsibility and vice, much in the same way that AIDS was seen as a consequence of gay men and their vice and stigmatized behaviors. I just like other things people do get people sick is the thing. Yeah, for sure. I know that's kind of obvious, but like it's a convenient excuse, I feel like. Uh, I mean, people get each other sick all the fucking time. That's what happens. People get sick. I just I don't. It's just such an extraordinary logical disconnect. Like, well, I guess a lot of people believe they deserve to get sick when they get sick. But like the idea that this is somehow malicious behavior, whereas like going to work with a cold isn't. Also, I feel like we're like as a society into specifically like in relation to the things that are in these comic books and like the United States, like we are very choosy when we want to apply like moral support or I guess like 
ascribe morality like to the cause of like some kind of like real physical illness or pandemic because like we have not treated the world kindly and like i feel like if you wanted to talk about like morality and like a response from like nature it's like well covid we don't treat the environment properly we don't treat each other with like respect and kindness and now there was like a response but it's like no we don't think there could be any kind of like we would never attempt to talk about the moral like like right yeah i guess uh origins of this pandemic because it's like that would be cruel and unjust because like no one deserves to experience this but like when you want to talk about something like aids or like in in relation like the legacy virus it's like oh well because these groups of people are not moral they deserve this yeah i mean i would argue that a really common mindset during the aids period was this idea that the disease was self-inflicted this is a conservative viewpoint of how it was deserved but at the same time it was sometimes a thing that only happened to the bad gay people, right? Like those who are being unsafe in their practices. And this was a more like liberal heteronormative and homophobic viewpoint. And so from like both sides, you have these like groups of people coming together to be like, gays deserve it for whatever reason. Yeah. And so it's not my fucking problem. Like, I feel like every time like I hear something that just like reinforces like how bad the world is, I'm just like, I got to take a moment, just be like, okay, just add that onto like the pile of shit. Uh, just to kind of wrap it up, another component of the legacy virus was the uh, a discussion of a cure, obviously. A cure for the virus or a cure, cure for the legacy virus? Mutant C. Oh, okay. Well, it links together. So mm-hmm. uh, the cure was in some ways seen as a way of preventing mutants from like embracing Magneto. Colossus, when his sister dies of the legacy virus, is so disillusioned with Professor X that he leaves and he goes to Magneto. So it's this idea of like AIDS or legacy radicalizes mutants or the gay community because Mm -hmm. of its effect. And so then this is later resolved in the 2001 story when Colossus sacrifices himself to test an experimental cure. Everyone is instantly cured of the legacy virus. This also means that everyone on Magneto's hospice island of uh, Genosha Mm -hmm. remains devoted to him so suddenly he has a small army of suddenly very healthy mutants that were once afflicted oh so if okay okay so if we if we if we heal gay people then they will become an army is that the idea yeah i mean it's like i don't know how intentional but hinting at this like idea of a gay community no longer threatened by aids is a threat to society at large it is then able to spread its degeneracy you know what i mean oh do they want us to die off or not <laughs> no, i'm just kidding sorry um the uh, last kind of thing with the, the legacy virus is in the series gifted written by joss whedon so you know it's gonna be definitely not offensive in any way <laughs> okay he's occasionally okay with gay Let's tell here how you feel about this one colossus's body was harvested by a biotech company seeking to suppress the mutant gene using a serum called hope countless mutants who were tired of being oppressed for being mutants voluntarily took an injection of this cure it's like the implication of the cure of the legacy virus then gives you a socially acceptable cure of you know of healing cure to mutants instead of being exterminated for being a mutant you can be cured of your mutancy it's conversion therapy i feel great about that i'm gonna back it up (laughs) (laughs) the thing is too is that it gets so complicated because um i'll talk about this next week but basically the idea of like it's hard when mutant stuff can have a political stance or a personal stance you have someone like rogue for example whose mutancy is her absorbing powers through contact so obviously she wants to be able to touch people she doesn't want to be a mutant Mm -hmm. And so, like, you could see it in that case. I don't know. I mean, like, as, like, a bi person and, like, a woman, sometimes it's, like, nice to think about not having to feel shitty and treated poorly in different situations. 
Yeah. yeah. That doesn't mean I need Joss Whedon writing a storyline <laughs> about it. You know what I well, mean? Well, you know that motherfucker would be like, um, it's not actually gay, though, so it's fine. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, but yeah, you know, so that's basically the legacy thing, the extremely clear-cut view of the AIDS virus, <laughs> or the AIDS uh, crisis in this country, and that continues globally and even to this day. You know, so when people are talking about, like, LGBTQ metaphors with X-Men, I feel like the legacy virus is as clear cut as you can get, you know? That that seems pretty fair. And I I hope this is not the case, but I just saw on, like, the wiki that the legacy virus can affect scrolls that have mutant-like powers. Uh, Yeah. What's a scroll? It's like the green aliens from the Marvel movies. Uh, Like, if you saw Captain Marvel, you got a pretty nice, like, look at, like, the scroll versus Kree War. Oh, yeah, I did see that. Yeah. Um, So I really, like, I... Captain Marvel, by the way, speaking of robbing representation, (laughs) bastards. (laughs) Oh, you mean her and her friend, the most... Like, her friend, her fucking gal pal, yeah. you absolute moron. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I am a fan of Captain Marvel, but I understand what you're saying. And uh, But my my point was that I hope they are not trying to introduce the legacy virus because they are introducing mutants and scrolls. I really and don't want to see that I'm virus. Like, I'm hoping that this is not just going to get wrapped up into this. So like, let's, I think we can let the legacy virus die in the comics and kind of move on to something else. I know some people who are really fans of the the Cure storyline. It is not my deal, personally. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like, I get people being friends. Let's ask Joss Whedon <laughs> what he thinks. Yeah, we can have him on the pod. <laughs> let's get Joss Whedon another movie. Yeah, in my expert opinion, let's get Joss Whedon on this podcast to defend himself. <laughs> Once and for all. Once and for all. Oh, man. Anyway, so that's pretty much all I have for this week. Uh, Next week, let's do a a continuation. So this is part of my expert opinion, and you'll hear the Mm. rest of it next time. Nice. Thanks for listening to In My Expert Opinion. Please remember to rate and subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you'd leave a review with your expert opinion on why this podcast is rad. Five-star reviews will get a shout-out on the podcast. A pretty big deal, if you ask me. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at expertoppod, or email inmyexpertopinion at gmail.com. Later, nerds! <laughs>